Hello, and thank you for joining us for this live stream today. It is our honor to speak to you, and I'm joining you live from the global headquarters of one of the world's best capitalized banks and one of the world's best capitalized countries here behind the Fortress of the Alps. We want to get into markets, what we're doing in portfolios uh, today, what we're seeing out there. So, and you know, what are the best opportunities that present themselves? So we're going to get right into it. We're joined today by a great team. Uh, we've got Paul Donovan, our global chief economist. We've got Giovanni, our commodity strategist. We've got Tillman, our Russia expert. And we've got Mark Anderson, our co-head of asset allocation. Uh, Paul, I want to start with you because I think you've been so good at putting uh, the economic picture, the cold hard economic picture into context. So what is the global economic uh, implication for the crisis that is now unfolding in the Ukraine? Thanks, Mark. Um, I think really there are two uh, distinct issues to look at, sanctions, and then the impact on oil and other commodity markets. As far as sanctions are concerned, the global economic impact of these is relatively limited. We should remember that Russia is not uh, a particularly uh, significant economy. It's around 3% of global economic output. It's about half the size of the state of California, uh, to put it in some kind of context. So whilst there will be disruption for certain companies, maybe for one or two sectors, in a global macroeconomic growth sense, it's not um, particularly significant as we see sanctions being applied. Where there is a more significant global economic impact is with the rise in energy prices. Now, at the moment, that is reflecting not disruption to supply, but concerns about future disruption. So it's a risk premium that's being put in. This will uh, lead to uh, higher prices for energy consumers. And as with energy, uh, sorry, every other energy price change, what this means is we are taking money away from oil consumers, but we are giving it to oil producers. So we're not talking about necessarily negative news everywhere, but this is going to be negative for uh, Europe, for parts of the United States, the United Kingdom, for Japan, where we have oil consumers who will have less money to spend uh, on other goods. Now, how do central banks react to this? Uh, I think it depends on how this evolves. In the base case, I think central banks would see this as a disinflation force, uh, that is to say something that will be slowing economic activity a little. Uh, and in that situation, uh, they are not going to react to the fact that we get a temporary spike in inflation. However, if we were to start to see a wage price spiral emerging, and we're not seeing that at the moment, but if we were to see a wage price spiral emerging, then central banks may feel that they have to take action on the inflation side and depress growth to break that wage price spiral. I don't think that's likely, uh, but it is a risk case to consider. Do also bear in mind that when we're looking at this and we're looking at the negative effects, we are, particularly in Europe, 
coming into this situation with unusually high levels of savings. So European consumers do have some resources to help smooth out some of the shock that comes from the higher energy prices. And that means that we shouldn't become excessively pessimistic on the growth outlook just because we've seen a spike in oil. Okay, and uh, you know, thank you for that, Paul. And I, I, you know, what I love to be able to do is bring in some of the discussions that we've been having all day. So I'll just make a few comments. One, one of which is how how you know this oil price rise. Just that uh, we've been looking at at one hundred and twenty five dollars a barrel for more than two months. Then we start to see maybe a half of percentage point. Uh, coming off of global GDP. So, you know, we're certainly monitoring how these, the net effects of what these higher oil prices can be on what that means for global growth. And uh, I also, you know, we've been getting a lot of questions and just a quick one that I think fits in here. You know, we don't, we're not in the business with our portfolios of predicting how many red Fed rate hikes there's gonna be. It's more about will the Fed hike uh, you know, too much that it chokes off growth, and it's certainly a risk. But, you know, w w in talking about this today, we do not think that the Fed is going to uh, st stop its rate hiking. We, ex we still expect them to do their first rate hike in March. And we all know that one uh, 25 basis point rate, rate hike is not going to really have any measurable effect on on the US economy, certainly in the short term, and certainly compared to the other factors that are going on here. Uh, but with that, I want to pass it off to uh, Giovanni, who has been, he and the commodities team have been an enormous help to our, our portfolios and the focus that we've put on uh, commodities uh, has has been a tremendous winner. Giovanni, Walk us through your thinking on oil and, and other commodities here. Thanks, Paul. Um, let me start uh, with oil. Um, to take one step back and look what has happened in the last 12, 24 months. Uh, first of all, we see low investment in new oil project and gas project. Uh, we are standing, um, we are down 60% from the levels of 2014. At the same time, we have seen the oil market being undersupplied. And with that, as a result of that, we oil inventories in the OECD stand at the lowest level since 2014. Oil demand is rising and is on the way to hit the new record high this year. OPEC is unwinding their production cuts and their spare capacity will fall to extreme low levels. So low inventories, low spare capacity, limited reaction function from conventional oil fields. That makes the oil market very sensitive to any disruption. Russia is the third largest oil producer globally, the second largest oil exporter. And as Paul mentioned, there are concerns that something could happen to flows. There has been some news out earlier today that um, it's getting more difficult to pay uh, Russian crude, uh, that some tanker companies are a little bit concerned to transport Russian oil. And this, this is also translating in the high oil price. Obviously, Russia doesn't only produce and export oil. It produces, the country produces energy commodities, crude oil, natural gas, coal, a lot of precious metal, 
palladium, it has a share of 40%, uh, platinum, gold, silver, and smaller ones as well. And on the agriculture side, we have wheat coming out of the region and a lot of uh, industrial metals used in the energy transition, such as nickel, aluminum, and copper. What we have seen is as a result of these tensions, there has been so far no disruption, but concern about disruption and prices of commodities have increased quite a bit. And commodities are up 13% this year, uh, driven also by strong fundamentals. And we expect these developments to keep prices supported over the coming months, but to be more volatile, so a more inactive strategy makes sense in our view. Lastly, on gold, which generates always questions, should I buy gold as a hedge or not? Uh, gold has done what was expected uh, by the yellow metal. Um, it played out its quality as a safe haven asset. But essentially, from here, it comes down how the tensions will evolve. Ongoing tensions could see the gold price moving to 2000. But the expectation, as Paul laid out, is interest rate should increase, inflation should level off, and that normally tends to be negative for the gold price over a longer term horizon. With that, back to you, Mark. All right, thanks, Giovanni. And, and let me say here from, for a minute, you know, we've talked a lot about oil. We've been very early and very strong believers in green energy and the switch that needs to take place this, only, this crisis only reinforces the, that because green energy for a nation means energy security, security. And that energy security becomes more and more important every day. But it's the work that we did on green energy that made us understand some of these uh, supply demand disruptions that were materializing in the markets. Uh, we identified them last year and took action on that. And so, it, you know, Please don't misunderstand what we're saying about oil and gas or green energy ar around these crises, but we urge you to take a closer look at this because it is going to be one of the enduring themes uh, of this period, energy security. Now with that, I want to uh, turn to uh, Mark Anderson and, uh, you know, we, we do a lot of work, but for many people, uh, you know, and we build a balanced portfolio and a nuanced portfolio, but for many people, it comes down to, should I sell now? So Mark, take us, uh, take us through that. Thanks so much, Mark. I think there's nothing more tempting through a crisis. We saw it with COVID as well. We kind of thought that this was something that could wipe out humankind, just as we saw it in initially. And now we're seeing kind of a, a war in the footsteps of, of your very, very kind of a emotional ride that makes all of us feel like we need to sell out of all of our equities. I think when we take back and, and take a look at what kind of history suggests to us, it is typically that through geopolitical crises, it's, it's actually often a, a time or an opportunity to, to buy risk assets to chart to, to move up towards kind of your strategic allocations. But you have to do it obviously in a super diversified manner as, as well. The reason that this is often provided an opportunity not to sell, but rather looking for the opportunity is that along the lines of what Paul suggested before is that it's, it's not really a situation that is likely to derail an economic growth outlook. Now, of course, as you point out, Mark, when we've been building our portfolios, we try to do it in a very nuanced way. And the first thing to say is that we have been holding 
equities and even a moderate overweight relative to, to benchmarks. And where we've focused in on that has been around energy equities. And that's been under the view that Giovanni laid out that on one hand side, we had a base case where increased demand from a normalization on the back of, of the COVID crisis easing off and, and kind of reopening of economies would see more demand. But in our negative uh, scenario, it would be one where oil prices would be lifted on an escalating uh, crisis around Ukraine. So what we've seen is that energy equities have done more than kind of double-digit returns year to date, conversely to, say, the, the broader indices. So that's something that we, on one hand side, has, has benefited from. But on the other hand side, of course, so see that, that concerns around demand also means that we are seeing energy equities down a little bit on a day like today. But commodities is something that, Peter, with energy equities or broad commodities helps uh, to stabilize, diversify a portfolio. We've done other thing in terms of our broad portfolio positioning, particularly in FX that we have both recommended to clients, but also have helped stabilize portfolio outcomes. And the first thing I would highlight is certainly the US dollar. Again, in the base case of a relatively hawkish central bank in the US has meant that the US dollar has been uh, a currency that we have liked. We have held overweight positions in and portfolio and recommended to clients. But at the same point in time, safe haven currencies would be doing well again in the risk scenarios from Ukrainian uh, escalation. So we're holding US dollars, but something we did a few weeks ago as well was to buy Japanese yen, which is arguably another one of the very strong safe haven currencies that tend to appreciate in times of crisis. And we have been buying yen and shorting euros uh, as a consequence and implemented that into our UBS uh, managed portfolios. Maybe the last thing I would highlight, Mark, here, I mean, uh, even if at this point in time, we obviously have all eyes centered around uh, Ukraine, we shouldn't forget that what has been probably still the most impactful things in the beginning of the year for global portfolios have been the hawkish central banks and the hiking path they're about to start that you mentioned before, Mark. And I think in this type of environment, I'd also say that when we are looking uh, for the areas of the market that was vulnerable, it was certainly around, say, more the technology, higher valued uh, growth stocks that we have been shying away from and certainly leaning towards value, be it around energy, financials or the like. So I just conclude off here by saying, Mark, I do not think that this is a time to sell out of uh, risk assets, even if this might be tempting. Obviously, you need to do things diversified and you have to think about the assets that appreciate in the base case, but put in those hedges in the portfolio that we have been doing actively and successfully, I believe, for our, for our clients. Well, thank, thank you, Mark. And, uh, you know, let me uh, be the devil's advocate here in a different way then and, and ask you, you know, it's great that you are a professional managing money and using a variety of asymmetrical risk reward scenarios in currencies, uh, options and other things to manage money professionally. But, you know, is it time for me uh, to buy the dip here? Good question, Marks. We we are obviously monitoring exactly the outcome of events today. We know that in a in a few hours we will have President Biden out as well announcing his, his sanctions. And I'd say in our base case, we we do not expect that we will get to a situation where, say, broad commodity prices, which is certainly the risk case, will rise significantly and have a negative impact on the global uh, economy beyond some of the scenarios we've mentioned before. So we're certainly awaiting to see some of the news flow and also how markets move today. But I would say, 
And you will know, Mark, because we did this exercise early in the day, we're looking at all the opportunities that might be arising from this. We have our eyes on the ball and I'd say a few things that where there could be opportunities uh, opening up, it's certainly be around things like commodity currencies where we see the commodity prices are rising, but on the currency fronts, we've seen a sell-off that might not be justified on the back of some of these fundamental commodity prices increasing. We've also seen implied volatility has increased uh, rather strongly uh, we do not think that with global growth staying on track in our base case that, that this will continue much longer. Therefore, there might be opportunities to uh, sell put options. We're also looking into credit spreads that are moving out. So uh, we, we, are, we are monitoring the, the situation very closely, Mark. This is not an outright bicycle with kind of volatility being high, but there are opportunities that are likely to open up that we will certainly continue to uh, recommend, advise our clients for and put into to manage portfolios here. All right. Thank you, Mark. And then finally, we want to, uh, it looks like we're going to have a little bit of time for questions, which we always love. Uh, but I, I want to turn to Till for a second and, you know, see what he has to say for those clients who are holding investments in Russian stocks and bonds. Uh, can you give us a uh, perspective on that? Yes, thank you. From the statements that we have from Western leaders, it is clear that they want to punish Russia for its actions um, very severely, very significantly. As, as Mark just mentioned, we don't think that this will disrupt the flow of energies, commodities, um, but it will still lead to significant costs on the Russian economy. So that is um, through targeting exports of technology to Russia. That means Russia would fall behind um, in technological advances and um, can't develop its strategically important sectors. It is through targeting the access of Russian banks to global capital markets, um, freezing Russian assets that overall would weaken the base of the Russian economy and would basically mean that the trend growth or potential growth of the Russian economy um, further declines. Now, Russian equities have suffered a lot already. Russian bonds are also trading at distressed values. But the punitive measures will not stop once the fighting stops. They will become close to permanent um, and really weigh on the outlook for the Russian economy. So um, some companies and, and, and banks can also be targeted directly. So in summary, what we think is that investors should consider um, taking losses now. Um, the risk is considerable that Russian assets will trade at even lower levels. Um, and for, for the recovery, um, for a medium to longer term view, uh, the Russian economy will have significant obstacles to, to come back to strength. All right, thanks, Till. Now, uh, we're gonna move to some questions in the time we have left. If, if you have other ones, you can send them through. Um, you know, we're getting these questions, base, which I would summarize as, uh, you know, how can these sanctions be applied and be very strong against Russia without harming uh, the Western nations that are, that are applying them? Uh, Paul, can, could you just say a word or two about that? Uh, well, again, I mean, it comes back to the relative size uh, of the Russian economy compared to the global economy. You're applying strict sanctions to something that is 3% of the global economy. So that means that uh, global companies, for the most part, 
uh, will have business in plenty of other areas which will be able to compensate for the loss of business with Russia. But as far as Russia is concerned, you know, it is suffering a loss of contact with a very large part of the global economy. You know, if we're talking Europe and the United States and Japan, you're you're talking you know well over half the global economy, um, and that obviously does a lot more damage to Russian companies looking outwards than global companies looking to Russia. Okay. Um, now, uh, you know, we have a question here on long-term investment plans and the importance of sticking to them. I mean, Mark, can you just uh, briefly elaborate on that? Because it, it is so, it's just so important. It's worth reiterating. Oh, I think it's a good point, Mark. I think, uh, so first of all, as investors, obviously, we are we are wealth managers. We are not speculators or traders at heart. We are here to serve clients that have financial objectives and long-term plans behind the way that they are investing. And when I speak about these topics, a lot of it obviously relates to the idea that we are that we're trying to bring a balanced portfolio, diversified portfolios that reaches those targets. And when I talk about hedges or things to do, it's really to balance and shape exactly that portfolio outcome. And I think what I wanted to say before as well is that when we derive portfolios, it's really under the idea that there are longer term trends in global economies, markets that at times will be uh, uh, disrupted and, and obviously challenged such as times, times as we have today through a, a crisis in, in Ukraine. But typically, a lot of the longer term trends we have in place are, are still there. And it means that the asset class returns will not in any meaningful way be impacted longer terms. And clients typically, when, when we're seeing that they're moving out of being too volatile in the way that they are trading, uh, typically will 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 miss the bigger picture of of trying to get to those returns and we find that that reacting in a way of of leaving risk assets at the at the heart of of crisis is typically not the best way to serve those kind of long term objectives so so that's the best advice we 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 can try to give to our clients here mark okay uh you know and then i think uh we have these questions about uh putting the does this selling around the start of a war into a context? I don't know if somebody wants to, if ha has, you know, we've run the statistical analysis on this, but I, I don't want to just quote it off hand if somebody, if somebody has it in front of them, you know, out of say out of uh, 16, 16 times out of 18, three months, the market's up 2%, things like that. Okay, I'll answer the, the question. Typically, in these uh, these kinds of conflicts, both uh, you know, both conflicts that involve oil and not involve oil, uh, in the, in the majority of cases, you get three months out, and the markets are up. Okay, and uh, I think I mean. I, you know, I, we have a specific question about uh, the German DAX and the potential of uh, sanctions hitting German businesses. I don't know if somebody wants to add anything uh, further on that. From the economic side, um, obviously Germany is more vulnerable on the, um, the risk perception around energy. Um, and the potential damage that 
uh, either disruption to energy supplies from Russia or escalated price of energy from Russia might do to Germany. So that's uh, a peculiar concern, which doesn't apply perhaps so much to a country like France or Spain or UK or US, where, where obviously the the energy is less critical. So for some of the more energy intensive sectors within Germany, the vulnerability comes in around um, the security of energy supply in the near term and the price of the energy when they receive it. Okay, and then I think we have about, to, right now we have two more final questions. One, I would summarize, at, and this is something for Giovanni around, uh, you know, we, we hear a lot about fracking and other things in the United States, um, but you know, you, you've spoken very clearly on how long it takes for that kind of a supply source to come back online if those companies were to make, make that choice. Uh, so maybe you can talk again a, a little bit more about the alternatives uh, here to Russian oil and gas. So essentially, there, there are two alternatives if we should see larger supply disruption, which only to some extent can compensate this, uh, Russian production. One is OPEC plus with spare capacity. That's on the one hand, Saudi Arabia and the UAE holding the most of it. But the, the group has indicated that the oil price at the moment is driven by geopolitics and not fundamentals. And with that, uh, they would prefer to keep their uh, path of easing their production cuts in a slow way with uh, um, 400,000 barrels per day. The other one is normally short cycle production that refers to uh, shale industry in the U.S., um, conventional oil fields need a lot of years of investments and until the production comes online. And with that, they, they cannot react quickly. Shale industry with fracking has short lead cycle of, let's say, six months. Um, what has changed since the price drop uh, we have seen in 2020, but also before, uh, there is a change in um, behavior of these companies focusing on capital discipline. That's something the investor wants, uh, that they don't drill to generate growth, but rather to pay back debts and increase um, the dividends and uh, for buybacks, and essentially that's something Mark mentioned, driving supporting the energy equity valuations. Um, we have also heard recently some of the larger producer in in the Permian shale field, which is in Texas and New Mexico, uh, indicating that even if the oil price could, would go to 150, they wouldn't drill more. So there is still some uh, inclination to be more on the cautious side. There will be stronger growth, but it's not the growth as we had in 2018 with massive drilling activity and production growth from the U.S. of more than 2 million barrels per day. All right, thank you. Now, uh, we have some final questions coming in. We're going to try to go through them quickly. Uh, you know, there's, there's talk of... Uh, Mr. Uh, Johnson, the Prime Minister of the UK, is talking about Russia being denied uh, access to the international uh, payment system. Paul, can you talk a little bit about how the Allies are weighing those kinds of decisions, which are, of course, political decisions that we can't necessarily predict? So uh, denying Russia access to the SWIFT system is a, is a big deal. Um, that makes it very difficult 
not entirely impossible, but it makes it very difficult for Russia to engage in international transactions. We've seen similar sorts of issues with um, Iran, for example, which has been denied access to certain international transaction systems. The disruption that would come from that, um, obviously the financial system in Russia would be disrupted. There would be domestic implications. You know, you may see concerns about holding money in Russian banks, for example, runs on banks. But You'd also, I think, see disruption to global supply because international payment systems are used, obviously, to deal with international transactions. And so that would raise further questions about how easy it is uh, for Russia to conduct international trade in commodities and other products with the rest of the world. Thank you. And then, you know, we have a question on uh, wider uh, military actions outside of Ukraine, and of course, uh, we, we we cannot speculate on uh, what President Putin ultimately will do at this point. Only to note that uh, the Western allies have drawn, ver you know, depending on how you look at it, whether it's right or wrong, they've drawn very clear distinctions between actions against Ukraine and existing. NATO countries. And obviously, this is a human tragedy that we certainly don't want to see extend beyond uh, any, any further, uh, one step further. Uh, but, you know, we have to monitor that, that situation uh, going forward. And then uh, finally, you know, why are the final question here, why are financial stocks uh, reacting strongly? Well, uh, one is because financial stocks uh, are you know are so tied to this international system because they're already heavily regulated. They are an easy way to uh, take actions, targeted actions uh, that can impact Russia. And so um, people know that uh, these that these global flows can be can be addressed through banks. And and uh, you know banks are at the heart of the financial system, and that's part of what we're we're talking about here. Uh, so that, that's why we're seeing this reaction in the, in the banks today. Um, but with that, we, I think we've addressed most of our questions. Again, it is our honor and privilege to speak with you live as these things unfold. We've just come out of a series of investment meetings. We will be going back into more and we look forward to updating you again uh, as, as, soon as, uh, as soon as that makes sense. So thank you again, and if other questions come in, we'll try to address that in the appropriate forums. Thank you. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.